I'm sorry. <laughs> we have a Charles Bronson here running around with his tough face and <laughs> not giving a fuck about the opposition at any point. <laughs> Welcome to the Flick Lab. This is a weekly film podcast where we are analyzing films for as long as we want. Every week, every Thursday, we punch out a new episode. We concentrate on international cinema, but we try to have a balance of international weirdness plus the films that everybody has seen from the machine that is called Hollywood. I'm Karri, studied media. He's Henrik, also studies media now. Here we go once again. This time, Death Wish. Oh yeah, what fun! The famous Bruce Willis 2018 vehicle, which was actually postponed or unreleased. And why is that? I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe the crazy mass shooting has something to do with a weird film that has the theme of vigilantism and basically going completely against any kind of notion of gun control. Well, I had a pretty bad kind of a joke about that, which I'm not going to... Take on this moment because somebody's going to have a death wish for us. But Henrik, how the hell are we watching this film? It would appear that it was a listener recommendation a couple of months back. I feel already sorry for both for us and for the listener. Yeah, thank you, Wukash. Excellent choice. As we will find out. <laughs> okay. Charles Bronson is miscast in a film, first of all. Pretty heavily, <laughs> might I add. This is a film that is based on a novel written by Brian Garfield and has no relation to the cat of the same name. The novel also has a sequel, but um, yeah, this is based on the original book or some other book. I was a bit confused about that. Loosely based on, on the original book. Something like that. Yeah, was written in 1972, got three years later in 1975. So pretty much around the time period when the film came out, the book got an official sequel, Death Sentence. But that kind of is, once again, that book got a loose adaptation in Death Wish 2. Loose being kind of, kind of the magic word here on on with with both of the books and the combined film adaptations. Yeah, we have Death Wish, which is followed by Death Wish Two, and there is a three, four, five, and a remake. A- a- and a remake, which which I, I guess mostly was named Death Wish only only because it had Bruce Willis's <laughs> acting career tied into it. Yeah. Unfortunately, or I don't know, I haven't seen it. And neither have I, neither have I. But I did know that that for the longest time, that was a Bruce Willis vehicle for which Bruce Willis actually did show up on repeated shooting days and not just 
for something like six hours, which is the usual stunt that he pulls off. If we want to analyze a complete film based on a trailer, I would say that the trailer was much more exciting than than the 1974 film. So the 2018 trailer at least had, you know, it had something better, which we can get to later. It may be as problematic as is the 1974 film theme-wise, but at least judging by the trailer, the 2018 version had at least some goddamn action in it. It's it's possible. It's possible. Death Wish. All right. Where to start? Well, let's talk about the director for a second or two. Michael Wiener. He died in 2013 at the age of 77, known for Death Wish, Sentinel, Hannibal Brooks, and the rest of the Death Wish original trilogy. Yeah, unfortunately, career and, and filmography-wise, Michael was not a winner. No, no, that's what I gathered from his resume. He does have some mark-setting films in, in his filmography, but mostly mostly what he, he did and what he directed were a bunch of action movies that are more or less forgotten these days. Yeah, there are something that we could mention here, of course. He was the director of Scorpio with uh, Burt Lancaster and Alain Delon. Yeah, we, which is okay. Spy, action, thriller, about two spies. Or was it, was it assassins who kind of have to go against each other? Yeah. It, yeah, what, what was okay. It's something that you can watch, but once again, it's not any kind of a record breaker film. Yeah, there was also the 1972 The Mechanic, which was made better in the Jason Statham remake. And then then there was The Big Sleep with Robert Mitchum, which, which has often been regarded as one of the more sleazier Raymond Chandler adaptations. And then there was the weird Poltergeist slash Rosemary's Baby slash... The Exorcist copy, the horror movies, The Sentinel. Yeah, yeah. the one that kind of uh, raised my interest from his resume was Parting Shots, which I haven't seen. Uh, the, the premise is such that after learning he is dying of cancer, a failed photographer illegally buys a pistol and decides to go vigilante and get his revenge on all those who have made his life a misery. I, I kind of a sense a running theme in Wiener's filmography here. You can also sense a running theme in the kinds of films that I prefer. <laughs> John Cleese is in this one. All right. I suppose it's scene by scene, during which we can take care of the rest of the casualties of the cast and crew. Well, yeah, you know, whatever is the, is the build-up this time. We start with a beach, where we have Charles Bronson and a woman. Uh, yeah, they're, they're only... Is it like... What, 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 one of the five scenes that actually take place outside of New York in the, during the entire film. That's something like 20 seconds. Yeah, already Charles Bronson or Kersey makes threats to his wife that you know, he might even publish these pictures that he has just taken of, a, of his half-naked woman. Yeah. <clears throat> is this called revenge porn? Well, technically, the lady is not yet naked. It's just just swimsuit 
pictures. I, I don't know what that would be called. I also wouldn't know what Paul would be rever- revenging here. Not yet, but no, in the event yet. of the eventual. Yeah, well, well, there, there really is, is no reason to avenge anything to, to his poor wife, even eventually in the film. Well, there is no reason or motivation to kill all of these gangsters on the street. There, there, there kind of is. When you go looking for trouble, yeah. But hey, we have a boring title sequence, in which we follow for about five minutes when the couple travels. Well, I actually quite like the title sequence of the film. I, I do like how it transitions from the rather tranquil and happy beach scene to much more ominous and kind of a threatening New York location. Yeah, every time you see that happy, picturesque moment where you see a couple and they are saying aloud how happy they are at this moment. I'm so happy to be here. I can't. I'm going to rip my pants off. It's so exciting. (laughs) And then that follows with uh, armed robbery and killing and murder and all that. You know, you can expect it, but that's okay. But the worst offense here is going to taxi... Picking up your mail, putting the lights on, brushing your teeth, or whatever is happening in this title sequence I dropped off. Okay, but uh, and then we get to the workplace of Bronson. I'm just going to call him Bronson. And uh, there's talk about concentration camps, where the liberals obviously should be put right at this moment. Yeah, there, there's also also Bronson's colleague, the, the casual exposition architect that usually just casually spouts out, spills out exposition. This this time making notion how there has been 15 murders in the last week and 20 murders this week and there is all these murders. Yeah, in, in the film's defense, this does take place in 1970s. 1974 to be more precise. And, and the 70s were the time when New York was actually quite crime-ridden hellhole for, for the real seas, it was actually officially known as Fear City d- d- during that time period, but it still is kind of a, well, o- obvious punch from the film film to pull off. Paul or, or Bronson has just come back from his holidays, he has just entered the office, and the exposition architect is immediately there to make the notion that all these murders are once again happening. Just in case you weren't on the uptake beforehand. Yeah, I mean, better not leave it to the imagination or the surprise element in any way. In, in case you actually belong to an international audience and have, have not yet heard exactly how bad the situation in New York is. In case you have not read the book as well, which was inspired by the experiences of the writer Garfield. He, well, he didn't become a vigilante, but uh, he had murderous thoughts, but decided to, instead of slaughtering people, just put this character on a piece of paper. Good choice. Yeah, and, and interesting note on that, since you mentioned the book and the author's own murderous thoughts and putting them on the paper, compared to the film, the book actually is much more meditative work, and it much more clearly is the writer putting his own thoughts on, on paper to process them, and it's it's kind of a more transitioning piece, where you follow follow the main character, 
Paul transitioning from from the pacifistic liberal into the vigilante to a point where the action and the murder the first murder actually happens only in the last 15 pages so almost entire book is kind of a going through that mental transitioning and not so much his vigilante antisism which is the case with the film then we get to the first murder we have at the flat of Bronson the wife of Bronson and and the daughter of Bronson and uh, the offense at the house done by the three burglars or barginers barchers whatever the hell one of them is uh, Jeff Goldblum yeah you kind of can't really recognize the man there being all, all, all in his 20s and looking so goddamn young yeah Cutesy, putsy, vigilant. Does it, doesn't even do the whole um aesthetics that he uh, <laughs> did basically on pretty much in all of his roles on the later days. We should try to get a Jeff Goldblum impression in this show. Um, I can't do it. Um, but yeah, they are at the house having some fun with the wall, leaving marks, spray painting the wall because that's a good idea to get caught, which they don't. Well, well, you know, the emphasis here is not so much on whatever or not spray painting the walls will get them caught. It's it's more to highlight that actually one of the punks does spray paint a swastika on the wall just to make sure that you do realize that these are bad people. Well, the wife is pretty much killed with these hits, dies later in the hospital, and the daughter is kind of raped by Jeff Goldblum, I believe. Anyway, well, uh, the actual rape really doesn't have the time to happen. Like, uh, there, there is a lot of yelling up from Codeplum that he will stuck his penis into her mouth, but... It looked like it would be already inserted there. I, I don't know, my take was that he was just, you know, getting it out. Could be. Anyway, to more important matters, uh, the, the wife is now trying to make a phone call to the policia but doesn't even get all the way to the phone. And then they just decide to split, man. Let's split, man, because this is so dangerous that she didn't even get to make the phone call. But anyway. Well, if, if they wouldn't have split on that moment, in the, then the film would have actually had to show you an actual rape. Yeah, so the script saved us from that. Yep. Then we get to the son-in-law's house, who calls Bronson his dad. Did I miss something? Maybe this is a American culture thing where you call somebody who is not a dad a dad. Yeah, uh, either it's like a son-son or it's a son-in-law. If it is indeed a son, then we are getting into some very creepy territory at this moment. Kind of, like yeah, sis- uh, uh, unless, unless the daughter is wife and, and wife is daughter. Uh, uh, and son is husband. So, so, son is husband. And husband is gone. Uh, and New York is rape. Henrik, it's Friday evening. My brain is not working even for this calculation. Yeah, whatever it is. Then we get to uh, the first offense. The first assault. We also visit the hospital. Yeah, Bronson gets the news that indeed his wife is dead and the daughter is not dead, but she is catatonic. This is a big mistake from the movie's part, in my opinion. I don't know about the book, but it's the same thing there. But 
why would you have the daughter as a vegetable in this film when instead you could have done what actually the remake seems to be doing is that they make this character a functional character throughout the film making you know that that character kind of reflect about the experience throughout the film i believe that would have been more interesting than just having a vegetable in the house well but but if she wouldn't wouldn't have been vegetable in that case you would have been forced to actually write some lines to her and kind of flesh her out as a character oh and that would that would mean work oh oh tight budget tight budget whatever the case we get to the funeral we get to police station no leads oh no leads okay guess i have to go vigilante we notice that the lady friend this daughter has gone a little bit schizo just screaming in the meanwhile bronson decides to take matters into his own hands with this kind of a simplistic tool putting some coins into a sock or something such there most probably is an actual name for this kind of a homemade little tool uh, i guess that's supposed to be some kind of a homemade blackjack like that, that yeah. is a quite typical improvised weaponry once again i'm not inter- entirely sure what the correct term to use for such weapon is well sock with coins well, essentially, yeah. That's what is being used against the first assaulter, which has the greatest lines in cinema. He beats him up a little bit, he runs, Bronson goes home, and he's like, oh my god, that was pretty heavy stuff, and keeps on training with that sack of coins. Then there is the most exciting trip to Tucson, which has basically nothing to do with anything. It's just a place to get the gun and get further motivation for Bronson for shooting people yeah that the Tucson sequence is like you said it it is to give to have a person a way to way to get a gun since person does not have a license and seen and after going vigilante he really can't actually use real purchased gun so the Tucson sequence is a workaround how person can get get a gun but and other than that, it, it kind of is supposed to once again be w- one of those transitioning scenes for, for Bronson as a, as a character. To show him how, how it's manly and kind of a, in American tradition to pick up a gun and use gun to solve the problems yourself. Not to trust the society and not to trust societal institutions like police. And kind of a hammer home more the idea of becoming vigilante. Other than that, it it mainly works for the film itself to be one of those moments where it really hamvisted in and quite forcibly comes up and enforces the political message that the film tries to push out. Yeah, political and uh, supporting vigilantes, essentially. Of course, this is nothing new in films that we support certain dangerous fringe groups or groups. What do you think about this whole thing, that this film is supporting vigilantism? Is it a problem? It most certainly was a problem for critics, for example. I'm kind of a two ways about the topic. Like... This is kind of a, one of the running themes, and if you count it as a problem, a running problem with the whole vigilante subgenre of action movies altogether, 
where there's a whole basic concept of vigilantism. It, it is very conservative, very Republican kind of a power fantasy. It's it's harkening back into the old days. A man with a gun might make right. The liberal society can't protect you, so you have to take the power on your into your own hands. And the gun is the way to use it. That's that's kind of what what goes on behind the themes and topics of pretty much every single vigilante movie that you have. Yeah, that, does that make the vigilante subgenre evil? Not, not particularly. Does it make uh, make an individual film like Death Wish automatically bad? I, I would say no. Does it make you a bad person because you watch and enjoy vigilante fiction? I would once again say no. Can it have some problematic societal effects in a culture that already is kind of a having this fight for the ownership of a gun and has very fetishized view of guns? Well, yeah, maybe. I, I could see that as, as a genre in, in America. And now, talking precisely as, as a genre, as, as, as something that has tens, if not hundreds, films pushed out around the subject matter yearly, I, I could see that in societal context, in societal dialogue, Vigilante subgenre could have a harmful impact. At the end of the day, this film, like many others, is just reflecting the inner demons or the feelings of everyone. Like I'm sure there has been a moment in everybody's life when you have had very, very deep hatred towards something or someone, perhaps. Hopefully not on this level that we see in the film, but, you know, essentially it's some kind of porn. It is, it is, and... Like it, it, it is thematical porn in the in the sense how it kind of a strokes your ego, strokes especially the toxic manly ego, where the lone man against the hostile elements of of the fringes of the society, and and you alone standing against the darkness and and causing a societal change comes into play. It, it is also a bit pornographic thematic-wise when when you look at how, for example, the issue of guns and the issue of, of you taking the law onto your own hands comes into play. And they are a bit pornographic also in a way how the violence perpetrated against the family members or, or the original victim of these films is often portrayed. Like, for example, in, in Death Wish, you you get the boobs, you get the ass, you get this extreme violence perpetrated against the daughter, and it, it even uses some pornographic imagery when, when showcasing you the rape scene. Something that, once again, is used, to, used for, for the emotional effect. To kind of get your blood boiling, to get get your being kind of shocked exactly how vile these people are, how how terrible people these attackers are. And this way, tempting you to join, to feel the anger and feel the righteous hatred against the, the 
bad elements of the society, which are the ones that, well, in, in Death Wish here, Bronson eventually starts to avenge. And interestingly, they chose indeed Bronson to play this character because he himself also told to the filmmakers that he is not a suitable choice for playing this. They were looking for maybe somebody like Dustin Hoffman, he said, but he's in the film. <laughs> there is also something quite peculiar about his playing of this character, I feel. Like, for example, when he finally hears that, okay, wife is dead. He, his face is telling me that, oh, bummer. And then they go to the funeral. He's already talking something about, well, I've been missing her for like two days. Now I have to get my shit going and start my life again. And then he goes to the office. So that kinds of things. Yeah, Bronson, like, like you said, Bronson is quite strongly miscast here. Like, like Bronson made the notion, I, I think that kind of the actor that the production crew or, or the screenwriters would have had in mind for the role would have most likely been something like Dustin Hoffman, who for three or four years earlier in, in 72 May acted in Straw Dogs, which is kind of a similar type of film in, in kind of a much more lesser scale, but but has has kind of the same structure. A mild-mannered urbanite being pushed and bullied by some fringe members of the society to a point where he actually takes the picks up the gun and takes the the justice to his own hands. I, I guess the reason why Bronson eventually was cast into Death Wish was that Bronson also was kind of a kind of a profilic actor on his own right, having appeared in in number of action movies. And that might be that that grizzled action star image might be something that that appeared to Winner when he was participating in the casting of the film. But yeah, Bronson is miscast in Death Wish. Bronson altogether as an actor, in my opinion, is someone who is kind of a limited in his in his range. Like a good director can take Bronson and put him in a good role in a good film. And then you get some go really good Bronson, like for example Once Upon a Time in, in the West, where Bronson really shines. But Bronson is not a dramatic actor. He's kind of that he's more on those stone faced doesn't really express that much through emotion and through facial expression, but more with action and words kind of actor. And Death Wish, for the most part, because it tries to take the more realistic approach to violence and and depicting vigilante acts, it, it weighs more into, into dramatic film. Like, Death Wish very much is a, is a film where you are supposed to feel and follow the emotional struggle of Bronson as he transitions from the mild-mannered man into the man of action. And th th there lies the problem with Bronson in this film. The text is dramatic and Bronson is not a dramatic actor. Yeah, you're always also waiting for him to take kind of a full advantage of the situation, pull it a little bit tougher and stronger against the vigilantes and showing, letting his anger show, but 
in the end, the director has decided to use Bronson as a kind of a everyday man in a sense that the guy who is afraid or feels like the need to puke after shooting a guy in the stomach, which I think just somehow doesn't work for him. It Yeah, it does look kind of a hokey. For example, the scene where Bronson, after his first murder, comes to his apartment and starts to puke. Like, you, 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 you really do see what Bronson tries to do, but he quite can't manage to pull it off. Like, he, yeah, he, he, he does all the physical stuff right. Like, being on the, flo- on the floor on his knees, taking his scarf and kind of putting it in front of his mouth, and then rising up and running to the bathroom. Like, he does, he does these things correctly, but he just can't bring the emotion through the acts. That, that, that's right. Like, on the other end, it's like, oh, my wife died, bummer. But then on the other hand, he goes to puke to the toilet because he shoots a guy in the stomach. So it's kind of a confusing thing. And interestingly, we get from the first act very quickly, like uh, American crime thrillers or movies in general do. But then the movie slows down immensely and we spend like an eternity watching the film which feels like an over two-hour film, Henrik, but it's one hour and 33 minutes. There's a lot of fat. There is this this thing, especially, like you said, after the first act, after the original attack, which happens very early on in the film. Like, it's ten minutes into the movie, and Bronson's family is being attacked. Right. And... After that attack, it takes goddamn forever before Bronson even acquires the gun. Right, and there we get to the actual airport. Now he's on his way to Tucson, and there's all of this. He gets the gun and sees the sees the cowboys doing their thing. He comes back and notices. Oh, notices that in his luggage there is this gun. I suppose that could have been entirely possible in in the year seventy four. Nowadays, <laughs> good luck. Yeah, good, good luck these days. But this was way before before 9-11, when you could pretty much get whatever you wanted inside the airplane. And that's what happens then. Notices the gun in the bag. Seems to be quite unimpressed by it, but makes it into a good use right away on his first fucking walk. This, this once again, this is, like I said previously, this is... Supposed to be Bronson slowly transitioning into vigilante. Okay, kind of a, getting these pointers that society is impotent and he has to take the power into his own hands. And finally through, without asking for it, getting the gun being the final thing that pushes him over the edge into the vigilante territory. But... <sighs> Yeah, once again, Bronson is not a dramatic actor, and from everyday man becoming the gun-toting pistolero of the modern era story arc, that is something that that is lying heavily on dramatic, and something that would require a dramatic actor to pull it off. And that, I would say, that is precisely, once again, that is the reason why the film feels that it slogs around so much at this time. Yeah, like you know basically what to expect, but the movie keeps 
slogging on somewhere in between. But yeah, there is the as assaulter and uh, robbery attempt. Kersey shoots the bastard in the stomach. Then there's the investigation at the scene. So w- what is up with this uh, sneezing cop anyway? Why do you have to make him sneezing? I guess the answer is that they wanted to have more character for their characters. And Jesus Christ, the, the way to do that is to, to have a tissue. That, and I would say that it also ties into the film's attempts to to play the themes and to be political. Because goddamn, if the film is not to be up on your face about how impotent and how weak and how womanly and how unmasculine the liberal society and society at large is. And and so showing the lead police who is tasked to be hunting Bronson throughout the film, showing him as, as this constantly sneezing, constantly weak, constantly sickly character, kind of a... Once again, it is one way how the film can emphasize this point. It's the movie where the Republicans win heavily. Like a, what is suggested to be a democratic Bronson now kind of betrays his own side, the cops, and joins the Republicans by just being a vigilante. I guess that's the, what the movie wants to say at the end of the day. Well, that is what the film wants to say. That, that is pretty much what... what the vigilante subgenre altogether wants to say because this is this is the character path that basically every single vigilante in vigilante fiction always takes they are always mild-mannered i trust the society i i leave my problems to the police we all should be mild-mannered and polite characters face face something that drastically changes their lives and then they turn their back to the, back on the society and become vigilantes like it's it's hammered down into the very core concept of being a vigilante that's right henrik and then we are hearing that the design is beautiful and it's accepted by the landowner and the and the company doing the changes to the land whatever the fuck it was and nobody really is interested about that, but we spend time on it, and then we get to the assault number four. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. My my take was w- w- with the whole land deal and and showcasing that that the design is being approved is that it's supposed to show you that now since Bronson has become a vigilante and taken the law into his own hands and started to use force he is emotionally kind of in a, in a better place like now he can smile and now he can enjoy his work and and the design that he's supposed to be working on is not just something that he runs into to escape the emotional pain of what happened to him and his family but now it once again is is something that he can do as a work as a job and enjoy it kind of a Kind of a fulfill his passion as a landscape architect. And a vigilante. So life is in perfect equilibrium. Assault 4, yeah. So now Bronson helps the marked guy, kills three people. And the guy who is rescued by, or the guy who is saved by this action, does not give any identification details to the cops about him. And, and the police officer with the napkin says that you saw him good, didn't you? 
bullshit. Probably so. Yeah. So then we have a, a kind of an uh, interesting moment where the taxi takes the son-in-law and Bronson to some random place just so that they can talk. Uh, it didn't open up to me where the freaking hell they are at this moment. I guess it didn't open up to anyone. Like it, it's okay. completely random location. There is no implication or whatsoever in the film, at least so that I would have spotted to implicate that this would be any kind of a place with a special meaning. And I know, and, right? and like not a, just a random location. You would have expected that Bronson would have been coming clean about his vigilantism or. You you would have thought, but that really no, does not end up happening. Yeah, so the chief provides instructions on how to handle this guy. So look for anyone who fought in any war ever. Look for Korean War veterans, look for Vietnam War veterans, whatever. Oh, Well, they have to do something, right? Then we get to the assault number five, which happens in the subway. The bad guy gets killed with a gun. Same gun. Nobody saw what he looked like. That's what the police are screaming when he flees the scene. Press conference. There is a pretty humoristic sounding plea from the police that if you're listening, please bring yourself in. Because that's probably what he is thinking about. But a nice try. There is a receipt found by cops. Just like that, like conveniently, you know. Like everything is convenient in this film, so never mind. The receipt was supposed to be like from Bronson's grocery bag which he was carrying with him in the subway, and which he left into the subway when he escaped after shooting at the two thugs. Maybe the lady at the shop then noticed who this guy was and could give some information. I read it in a way that they are using the address in the receipt to pinpoint the store where where the groceries have been bought, and this way kind of a... Circulate the area where Bronson most likely would be living, because of, uh, coming coming from the thesis that people kind of a shop in the grocery store that is near to their actual apartment, and Bronson mm. would not be smart enough to travel a few street blocks further into another area and buy buy his fake groceries from there. Yeah, like. Hey, it would be actually exciting to see finally a kind of a crime thriller where the the sort of a bad guy or our hero in this case would would be making all the right moves, like really paying attention to the detail, going to the very freaking nitty gritty to the kind of level where also the audience is kind of blown away how well this guy is building his cover and getting away from the cops, but. I can't think of such a film. Death Wish is certainly not one of them. No, Death Wish is the film where Bronson gets away with his antics pretty much simply by luck. And counting on the fact that Mm. everybody who comes into contact with him when he's doing his vigilante stuff does not report him to the police. Then again, yeah, Bronson doesn't really care whether or not he gets caught or or what. That's what I... Get from his facial expressions or the lack of them. We are spending a little moment at home and the son-in-law appears there but doesn't appreciate the happy high mood of Bronson. But then again, this is Charles Bronson. So, Assault 6 leaves a joint, goes to the tunnel. 
supposedly a subway tunnel, except there are no subways and there are zero people, except the bad guys and our vigilante of the night. Bronson does his thing, runs away from the police, goes into the next tunnel or something. This is a really freaking big subway station or something. And then when Bronson goes to the goes around the corner underground, then suddenly there's like hundreds of people and a subway and a lot of noise. Well, anyway, Bronson gets into the subway and the police is completely clueless outside. Like, where did he go? Where did he go? Would you fucking get into the subway? would have been kind of easy option. You can't really expect too much brain power from something that the film has already entitled to be as a pussy pussy. What if I want my brain power for this movie right now? Oh well, not forthcoming. Operation of the baddie. Yeah, the baddie is operated on, but uh, he also dies. I was kind of expecting him to give like more clues, like, hey, he looked like this and now I die. But that doesn't happen. Yeah, if he, if the bad guy would have wouldn't have died in the in the surgery, in, in that case, the police finally would have had a description of Bronson, and they might actually be doing a bit better work in in apprehending him. But Except like like, like I said, would. Death Wish is a film where Bronson gets away with his antics because of luck. Uh, and uh yeah bro <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> uh, it's been a heavy week <laughs> oh my god this fucking film <laughs> come, come on man it's a cinematic <laughs> classic <laughs> okay get a grip Corey. so <laughs> We have a Charles Bronson here running around with his tough face and <laughs> not giving a fuck about the opposition at any point. <laughs> and then we have this so, this this absolutely oh, we have these overblown characters, these bad guys that don't make any sense. <laughs> they are such um, caricatures of of bad guys. I've never never seen probably anything so funny <clears throat> when it comes to bad guys. Like you can see a million miles away that that that's how you write a bad guy when you don't have any ideas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The visual coding on, on basically every single street thug is is something that gives away the thugness immediately. <laughs> yeah. I, I would say the worst offenders on this record are the five hippies at the very last image of the of the film. <clears throat> yeah, well, Bronson is watching the news from telly and even the TV programs are pro-vigilante or vigilantism. <laughs> and there, there is a segment where, like, I don't know, some construction workers are kicking some guy who did something and... And the guy ends the interview like, oh, did that happen? He got bruises? Well, I guess he must have had a bad accident back there or whatever the quote was. Jesus Christ. And uh, showing their faces on television, they'll be the first ones to be killed on the streets. Well, and not, not, not only that, you know, they could be also the first ones to be accused with battery and assault and in, in that situation. 
Because granted, yeah, 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 they, they were a group of vigilantes that apprehended the bad guy, but they also used considerable force in in doing that. Like it has, like it is being noted by the reporter in in the news segment that the bad guy who they apprehended ended up actually suffering a broken arm as a res- result of their actions, uh, as a result of the vigilantism. And while you can, of course, make the case that that they apprehended a bad guy and you shouldn't feel too much pity for the bad guy and it was only a broken arm, but it still kind of does at the same time unknowingly from the film's part showcase the exact danger, one of the dangers that vigilantism as a theme, as an actual element in, in real world carries with it, which is this excessive use of force and and going overboard with the force that you use. Yeah, yeah. I found it a kind of a surprising scene, giving so much of a support still for violence. I I, I, I don't know. I mean, this film has a political message. <laughs> yeah. Every every vigilante film, in a way, has a political message. This has more than some others. And, <clears throat> and you, you, you can call this film... A lot of names, a lot of things can be adjusted into this film. Subtle is not one of them. No, no. Um, we should quickly still talk about the 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 clear thematic thing that we just have to. So, so the cops are supporting the vigilante, and all the cops are in on it. The chief says that do this, just give him a like a scary inspection and I will give him a scary call and still Bronson doesn't give a fuck but um <laughs> but like it doesn't work but okay so they are supporting this vigilante so they are criminals themselves at this point which kind is the kind of, of risky kind of which is not believable anymore in my opinion or maybe well, this happens I- like every other month in in New York well, well, at least not in the sense that the police official would openly be supporting Bronson's actions. Because stating out that, that you side with Bronson when you are a police officer might actually very much be something that would land you in, in trouble. Yeah, but this is just not how you investigate crime. <laughs> like you just let the guy go and... You don't know anything about the circumstances. Well, I'm talking the obvious here, but Jesus Christ, police force, what are you doing here? Like you are, ev- you're even worse than the movie presented to you being in the beginning of the film. Like you're not doing anything at this point. <laughs> Bronson escapes the flat with considerable ease, and the police is once again clueless. We have the final assault, the iconic steps that are featured in the poster of this film. Yeah, I believe. So Bronson chooses to shoot first the guys who have a knife, not the guy who has a gun. I don't know what to say about this. Well, the knife guys are closer, but hello, bullet travels quite fast, I believe. So even Bronson can't challenge the bullet at this moment. Well, he, he kind of can. I mean, Bronson still is quite near the bad guy with a gun, and the bad guy only manages to shoot him in the leg, so... Yeah... The blood looks so fake in this film. <clears throat> it, it does. It, it, it does. Like, it, it once again chooses to go with that bright red blood. 
which was kind of yeah. made famous by, by the Hammer horror films. <laughs> yeah. Then there is the young patrolman after this final assault, and and there is no report written at this moment, and they have gathered an address for the killer, and a gun is found. And then the officer asks to forget everything, and officer is like, okay, gotcha, boss. Yeah, mo- mo- notably, n- not only the gun is found, but also unconscious Bronson is being found from the scene. And, and they ma- ma- managed to hide even that. Like the media does, does get a warned that somebody somebody has been found injured from the location, as as you can see notice from the records that the media comes up with. But at the same time, like they they somehow yeah. completely managed to sneak Bronson out of the premises with the ambulance to the into the hospital. And they still completely manage the police manage to, manages to su- uh, suppress the official notion that basically the entire media at this point shares that the person they found from the premises is is Bronson and Bronson is the famous vigilante. The police is skating on very thin ice at this moment, but they take their chances anyway and let him go. And Bronson moves to Chicago. And there is, of course, some fight going on at the station already. And Bronson gives them, you know, the the finger, let's say. I'm going to see you later, guys. Gonna shoot your balls off. And that's the Yeah, that, that's the finger pistol. Finger pistol, thank you. Okay, well, yeah, favorite performance. I I guess uh, there really is, is no... Real shining standout performance. No, in in this one, I I felt that basically all the actors were kind of flat throughout the film. I like the the one who I I felt gave most most drama and gave most range was was Stephen Keats, who played Jack, the the son-in-law who who is the son that is the city that is Bronson. So you know. Goes to Keats. Yeah, well, I I struggled with this category, and uh, I don't know what to tell you. Like, like especially the character playing the the son-in-law, he gives a terrible performance, notably bad. But I, eh, no, well, I'm just gonna say Bronson reluctantly. <laughs> Bronson who shows so much emotion in the dramatic scenes. Like from, yeah. from whose face you really can see, can read and feel, <laughs> most notably feel the pain and anguish. There are no good choices here. There so. kinda ain't. Like it, it, it does have the film does have actors and actresses who have had careers before and after Death Wish, but none of them actually get that much material to work with. I kind of like that one policeman that appears in the beginning parts of the film, the the, the black guy that we meet in a couple of scenes. I, I, I kind of would like to start with Hope Lang, who plays Bronson's wife, and who later appeared in Blue Velvet, the David Lynch feature, but Hope Lang is like four minutes in this film. Yeah, hard, hard to say much. Yeah, about re- that, really hard to point out that, you know, standout performance. 
But yeah, Ho- Hope Lang, which we have, who we have already seen in this podcast in Nightmare on Elm yeah, Street ba- ba- back in the Nightmare on Elm Street two days. Yeah, favorite scene. Uh, uh, is is I, I I would say the first kill from Bronson, the chunky in the park. Yeah, I was thinking about that. But, uh, something memorable was, you know. The last assault scene at the steps, kind of an interesting situation. So that's what I wrote down. Favorite quote. My favorite quote would be, "All right, son of a bitch, turn around, son of a bitch," because uh, it was hard not to die of laughter at that moment. <laughs> what? 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 N- not? Not to go with with uh, give us the honey, honey, which is being said by uh, by a male thug to Bronson. Giving yeah, it a, a bit, bit homoerotic tone because that that was really odd choice of words given in that situation. There is a lot of those, like one of the cops saying with this kind of widened eyes, weird. That too, I maybe on my end uh, as a as a favorite quote, and this is going to be two parter, so not I I guess technically pure quote, but. From the opening of the film, you, uh, Bronson going, you got a prime figure. You really have, you know, and Bronson's wife commenting, that's a euphemism for fat. Uh, favorite kill? Would be the two talks in the subway. I, I guess that's as graphical as this, one, uh, as this film goes when it comes to Bronson's kills. Yeah, mm. I'm not sure how much is, this is about the kill, but anyway, the the guy who tries to go uh, go up a ladder with red paint on his coat. So, Henrik, if you were a vigilante with the nickname of Vigilante, like in this film, which soundtrack would you choose to play on the background when you kill? Would it be jazz like or R&B, Christina Aguilera, Tupac, Bon Jovi? Eläkeläiset, Republika. I, I I guess it would be it, it would be just one song. It would be Britney Spears's "Whoops, I Did It Again." Oh, good one. Hmm. I I was uh, struggling between elevator music and uh, some porn soundtrack, but uh, then I decided on the Chinese instrument erhu with electro house beats and bongo drums. I got a little creative there because that's as much sense as this soundtrack makes in the film for me you know the the soundtrack is done by herbie hancock who did win the oscar for around midnight made in 1986 but i'm not into this uh, jazzy vibes music of the soundtrack at all yeah me me neither me neither it's like it it didn't trouble me throughout the film like i wasn't holding my ears uh, or sitting on the edge of my seat seething with rage or anything like that, but at the same time, the soundtrack really did not make any kind of a impact on me. Yeah, I mean, I, I like jazzy music, some of it, but it seems to be just so all over the place, often when you use it in a film. Yeah, and I, I guess in in here, in, in, in the original Death Wish, something that really did not help the jazzy soundtrack was kind of how slow and often even boring the film itself is 
Yeah, I was kind of expecting you to like this film a lot, like be on the defensive side. But uh, I, no. I, I was kind of expecting that myself too, because this is one once again, this is kind of seen as a classic film for some odd reason. Most likely, I guess, because this was the jumping off board for the franchise, for all the sequels, which often are brought up in in so bad it's good film compilations. Yeah, well, now I'm really curious. Why in the hell Wukashu asked us to even watch this film? Like, what was the motivation? <laughs> First shot that comes to mind from this film. Would be at the park, nighttime, the last the last assault scene when Bronson turns around and shoots the guy on top of the stairs. Yeah. Something that most likely is helped a lot by the fact that that is also the image that is in the posters. Charles Bronson, out to kill. Yeah, yeah. The image that pretty much is the entire film when it comes to the film's legacy. My first shot that comes to mind uh, would be... Uh, w- would be it, it it's the one guy in the park who first is like eyeballing Bronson and then suddenly comes running off the stairs like very sneakily and gets shot in the stomach which shot best exemplifies this film i think it's the one in the posters the stairs once again i, I would say it's the dull expression on Bronson's face whenever <laughs> something dramatic happens <laughs> yeah well favorite shot yeah, the, 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 the on top of the. Yeah. I I I repeat here the first image that comes to my mind, the park shot. Yeah, but I I liked some of the white shots uh, when Bronson is in the subway and meets these two gangsters, and then one of them stabs him in the shoulder. Favorite hot. Yeah, this is the moment where you get to pick from the two ladies, the one who dies from being kicked into the head and the one that <laughs> is brutally raped and has has her ass painted red to implicate <laughs> rectal bleeding. So, you know, whatever you pick, you pick perfect. Yeah, like, our categories are working so well once again. Oh, I'm gonna go with Jeff Goldblum with his, like, hot long legs. Because he, he likes this kind of humor, anyway. He likes all kinds of this kinky humor, so there you go, Goldblum. You know, definitely Goldblum. Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to go off and pointing out that, you know, you carrying out this this quickie <laughs> to this far, in the, even in this episode, will in no way hide the fact that this is just a, this originally was just a ham-fisted attempt from you... <laughs> To get Mariam Diabo from the, uh, the Living Daylights to kind of a sh- so- somehow push her to be the most beautiful and most sexiest Bond girl in of the franchise. I love her. I love her. Yep. And it didn't happen in, in the Living Daylights. Me and Tom did not take the bait and did not fall for your tricks. <laughs> and it, it still is not going to happen. So we can just as, as much... We can just as easily just, you know, go and ask the whole favorite heart. Oh, you are not re- replying to this question. Really? I, I, I'm not replying to this question. <laughs> God damn it. No, what, what was the not not hot part? Silence prevails. I, I, I guess Mariam Diapo in, in The Living Daylights. 
What took me out? Slow pace, no facial expressions. Henrik? <laughs> it's it's like it's pretty much the same that you gave. The extreme lo- slowness of the film, Bronson, the entire rest of the cast, and and a heavy-handed in-your-face political messaging. Like I <clears throat> I I get these films are political by nature. I, I, I get it, and I, I am not voting the film for being political. But goddamn, if this one is really not pushing its its politics in your face and trying to make you believe that it's somehow smarter than it is. Yeah, it's like uh, your colleague coming to you with a box of crackers and stuffing them into your mouth. Here, look, look, look. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This this is a film like the original Death Wish. I, I would say from the entire franchise of Death Wishes, this the the original one is the one where the political messaging is handled most poorly. Yeah, there are some quite really really the, the film goes quite I don't know to kind of an uncomfortable territory with a couple of scenes where. There is this lady at the party making a comment about the crime rates and all, and yeah, and and and, and not just that, but but like it, it, to me, it's a combination effect. Sure, the 13 percent of population, fifteen percent of crime lady feeds into it, but it's also the Western show sequence, which is simply there to highlight you a political message. It's uh, basically the Bronson's friend in Tulsa who gives him the gun and and all the monologues he gives about the panty-ass liberals and the gun control and they are tra- taking away your guns and gun is just a tool. It's it's the scene in the restaurant where, the, where Bronson and his colleagues are talking about, about the vigilante. And then one of his colleagues, the friendly-ass... Exposition architect man in middle of a meal just pulls a newspaper out of his ass, spreads it out in front of the camera, and the camera freezes there just so that you can see the headlines, which juxtaposes Bronson's manly actions as vigilante next to the woman's Olympics. Just so you know, do, do you get it, Curry? Do you get it? The society is feminine, women's uh. Olympics. Ladies and on the on the other page, manly man Bronson vigilante uses gun. Do you get it? Isn't it smart? Uh, oh, like yeah. uh, it's it's like it's it's constantly it's pretty much constantly in in the film. Like it's it's followed by the fucking news broadcast, which once again highlights how great the vigilantism is. I I I watch. I I I can take the political messaging in in vigilante films. Like sure, sure, make your vigilante movies, and when you do, the political message will be there. Just you know, go ahead, go ahead and do it. But this film kind of a, it, it wants to say you how goddamn smart it is, and it's uh, it is as smart as fucking goddamn Forrest Gump, as a <laughs> yeah. character, not as a film, but as a character. That it is. Scissors of Sacrilege. 
Well, I would firstly cut the fat of the film. I would probably recast Bronson to somebody else, like, for God's sakes, we can go even with Dustin Hoffman or, for God's sakes, with Bruce Willis. Uh, what else? I would make more character intera- interactions. I would make them more interesting. For example, I would not make this lady catatonic. I would not make Bronson go into Tucson because that's kind of pointless. You could have done it even in New York. But then again, you know, the Tucson shots, you know, they give some brightness into this extremely darkly depicted and this ugly world where we spend most of our time. Yeah, and you you need the Tucson to make the point how how the people living in Texas are more kindred spirits to the frontier mads who founded America and they are more in touch with the real world and they are more in touch with well basically with with manhood than those pantyas liberals who live in cities like New York. Which are instantly recognizable. But yeah, my I I would kind of make the same changes as you did. But I will al- would also tinker with with the action sequences of this film because goddamn, if even the action isn't boring here in the original Death Wish, it kind kind of is. And and the reason for that, if if you are wondering why it felt so so slow and so absolutely fucking nothing is happening is because the action sequences in general are just some thug stepping in front of Bronson, pulling out a knife and showing, like, I I have a switchblade here. And Bronson, without moving a muscle in his face, just pulling out a gun and shooting that person. That is basically every single fucking action sequence of the film, not counting the la- very last os- assault in the park, where one of the bad guys does have a gun and shoots Bronson in the leg. Yeah, finally. Somebody has a yeah, gun. Yeah, fu- fu- fucking finally. Finally an action sequence in the film where where the setup is not that. There's Bronson who has a gun, and then there is some Hutlum who has a knife. I'm not sure if this uh, director is really giving a lot of focus for the sense that uh, I, I was expecting uh, Bronson to get closer to the enemy, but that never happens because they're fucking playing with the guns and they, there's never like a real situation going on. He just shoots them. Yep, yep. And the final assault scene actually ends with this moment where Bronson is uh, w- wanting to do the like the Wild Wild West uh, gun draw and they're having a huge distance. And even the bad guy is like, what are you doing? Are you goofy or something? And he just runs away. Yeah, yeah, like like the final draw, it, it ends up with Bronson passing out because of the gunshot wound to, the, to his leg, and then the bad guy runs away. And that's the film, basically. That That's the film. <laughs> like, it, it, is the, it is the only moment where both Bronson and the bad guy do have firearms. And the situation is not immediately resolved, even before it actually starts, by the fact that Bronson has the automatic upper hand to his opponent because he has the gun. That is the only sequence where that is not true, where they both are on equal footing and they both are carrying firearms. And it basically ends up with Bronson just passing out and the bad guy running away. You really Jesus know your... Christ, like, fix your action. 
Right. You really know you're watching that wish. When? I I, I, I would say when, when checking your watch intensifies. <laughs> when you have the goofiest junkies of New York on film. Three adjectives to describe the film. Mine are slow, heavy-handed, and in the end, quite uneventful. I would say hilarious, uh, caricaturic, and just plain old stupid. Did you look at your watch? Because I know you did. I did. <laughs> I did. This was maybe one of the most watch-checking films for a long time in, in, in the Flick Lab. <laughs> Yeah, I, um, yeah. On, on my first watch, I admit that uh, I was so bored that I gave the watching responsibilities to my friend. He kept watching it, and I went to brew some tea. Then came back and asked what the hell was happening, and he had actually trouble explaining it to me. <laughs> would you recommend that wish? I I most. Definitely would not recommend this one. What? An IMDb is seven out of ten points, and like a I, I, IMDb is is basically being created by casual film watchers who also give something like eight point seven to to the latest Marvel film when it comes out, and you have to wait for fucking four months. For the score to actually settle in into something that is more closer to reality, so I, I never actually have counted too much into the hands of IMDb. I do know that that Death Wish, the original, is is supposed to be some kind of a landmark film, but I never understood why. Because these days the vigilante genre. Like films in in the vigilante subgenre, they have surpassed Death Wish. I would say the films that preceded Death Wish also some some of those have surpassed Death Wish. And Death Wish never actually invented the vigilante films. And like, I I really don't know and don't see any reason why I should recommend this one. If you have to check out Death Wish film, just so that you can say that you have done it. I in that case I would say what's some of the sequels, like what what Death Wish 2 or watch Death Wish 5. They are also bad films, but goddamn at, at least Bronson, you know, does something more there. Like in in Death Wish 5, the bad guys have guns. And, and Bronson has to shoot bad guys who have guns, and and Bronson fires a, a bazooka. So you know it's it's better film than than this one. Yeah, at least there was some consistency that uh, Charles Bronson is in all of them. And uh, if you want a little bit of a different flavor for this kind of a death wish, then maybe you want to watch the remake from 2018, uh, starring Bruce Willis. Yeah, the, I I don't know if it's good, but. Like you said, at least it has Bruce Willis. Yeah. So somebody said that it's it's the, it's the best film that Eli Roth has directed. Then again, we are dealing with Eli Roth, so that's <laughs> yeah. not saying much. But, but basically, check out any other vigilante film than the original Death Wish. But when it comes to the 70s, 
Was this actually important film at the time because it was more violent than other vigilante films that came before it? I'm still kind of iffy on also that. Well, like, holy shit, I can't see how this would have been important even in the 70s. Like, like, sure, 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 New York was the fear city. And, and the situation in New York was terrible, and, and this shows that New York and New Yorkians can somehow raise on top of the situation, and, you know, kill all, all the hotlums and hippies from, from disturbing the peace on the streets, but... Like, this ain't even the only film that deals with that subject. Like, there were countless of films that revelled in how terrible the situation in New York is, and how this or that can be a solution into the into New York's problems. So, like, I I I don't see why why this would have been would have been so prophetic, even even when it came out. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, exactly the thing. Yeah, and, and you you made the notion of, of of the violence, like like maybe that could explain it. But Death Wish even isn't that violent on its own right. Mm. It wasn't even when it came out. Like fucking Sam Peckinpah had been making films for years before this one came out. He the Wild Bunch, goddamn Wild Bunch came out sixty nine. Five years before before first Death Wish, and that film is way more violent than what Death Wish is. Like it it it, it has Wild Punch has bullets going through people and and someone being dragged on the ground until he is bleeding and dies. Like ho- holy hell! Yeah, and if it was unclear, no, I would not recommend the original Death Wish. It's actually, it doesn't feel like an original film in any way. Like, there's countless of 70s crime thrillers that kind of are aching to the same direction. And uh, many of them were done with a better choice for a leading actor in this film. So, uh, because of the miscasting. So, no thank you. Yeah, and if you're a hardcore Charles Bronson fan, which, by all right, you can be, like, like I said in the beginning of the episode, Bronson is not necessarily a bad actor. Like, if you if you take Bronson, you take right film, you take right director, you get really good Bronson. But this is not the film for that either. Like, like if you want your fix on Charles Bronson, go watch Once Upon a Time in the West. Like, that's a really good film, and Bronson right. is excellent. Right. Well... That was the listener recommendation for this week, Henrik. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've said it before and I said it again. Our listeners most definitely should not send us recommendations because this is what ends up happening. When, whenever a listener actually asks us to watch a film and we watch it, that film gets butchered for some odd reason. Fortunately, we have some better ones on the list coming up. For example, we could pick up Leprechaun 1 and 2. Oh god, no, 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 no. Okay, crossing that one out. God damn midget horror films. 
like, like the next one you would actually, you know, recommend if we would touch a leprechaun would be goddamn rappelled stilt skin. And that also is fucking abysmal and, and horrible experience. Yeah, I believe this was just posted as somebody posted it as a joke because they didn't like our post. So there you go, leprechaun. Well, well, if, if it's a listener recommendation, I guess in that case we have to tackle it on eventually because goddamn if we are not fighting for listeners here. But <laughs> but yeah, leprechaun is like spoilers already. Leprechaun is, is terrible and abysmal feature. And it's just a slippery slope into even more worse horror films. What about Borat? This this is full of all the classics. Sasha Baron Cohen. Yeah. Yeah. Um. It unfortunately is my sister's favorite film, or so she says. Well, you know, if if nothing else, if nothing else, Borat at least is an interesting social experiment. If if you can believe the director's claims that the people appearing in the film do not know that they are appearing in comedy film. I suppose the problem is that in most cases I did not buy it. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of, I'm kind of a mixed. I'm kind of a mixed like after seeing the film it's very easy to see that that would not be the case. Candid camera type of things. You can't trust them. So I'm not interested to see them because half of the time at least they're bullshitting. So the trust is gone. Trust is gone. Anyway, we got sidetracked again. Anything else? Or should we get the hell out of the laboratory? Maybe, you know, after after spoiling poor Lucas's recommendation, they're taking something that very well may be one of his favorite films and shitting all over it. I, 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 so. I, guess, I guess we should just close the laboratory doors before we cause any more harm. Yeah. But you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Don't forget to join our International Cinema Challenge where we are watching 20 films from 20 different countries. If you don't want to watch the 20 films from 20 different countries that we are going through, then you can watch any 20 different films from any different countries that you want of your own choosing. And then at the end of the year, in 2020, uh, in January, you can come and join us in the laboratory to talk about those films. But um, at this point, you know, it's about like October, November-ish. So I believe there's going to be only one person in that show to talk about this challenge because nobody else has watched all the films. <laughs> What's wrong with our listeners? Yeah, I, I guess at this point we can stop kind of advertising the International Cinema Challenge because this has it's, kind of been it. <laughs> There's like four films left. Yeah, it's it's almost over. Yeah, the the long hike or... Well, have you liked it? It's been fun. It's been fun. It, it, it's been fun, it's been interesting, but it also has been quite taxing. And with those words, get ready for the International Cinema Challenge of 2020. <laughs> oh, God. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay, what? Be on the lookout what these two crazy fins will boil up for you. Next week. God damn it. I was supposed to write it down this week, but of course <laughs> I did. Ne- next week, it, it will be a movie. <laughs> <laughs> next week, we're, we're going to watch The Blue Light. It's a film from Japan, and we're going to have a Japanese visitor, and I'm very much looking forward to that. (laughs) That's the show, boys and girls and in-betweeners. See you next week.
Until then. It's been a heavy week. <laughs> oh my god. Favorite goat? Three adjectives, three adjectives to describe the film. Favorite goat? Image might be something that that appeared to winner to winner. Favorite goat? It's been a heavy week. <laughs> oh my god. Minnäpä kämpis lähtee. Okay. Joko kämpiksellä menee hermo sun podcastiin? Meneekö kämpiksellä hermo mun podcastiin? Kollega kysyy. <laughs> No hyvä. Elikkä vasta sun peimene. <laughs> Ei. Ei, se on. Hän oli iloinen vaan, kun tehdään podcasteja täällä. Hän valehtelee. Valehtelee <laughs> hänen valheensa on paljastettu.